Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report, and joining me again today is James Thompson, Chanticleer Columnist at the Australian Financial Review. Hello, Great. Alan. Thanks Great. for having me. Thanks for coming in again. Uh, it's great to have you, and um, uh, how's, how's it all been going in the chookyard? Well, it's been a busy week in the chookyard. My, uh, my fellow chicken, Tony Boyd, the head chicken, is away, so I'm, uh, I've got the, uh, the hen house to myself, which, and there's plenty happening, so it's good. Yes, indeed. And uh, so this week's news is um, uh, the RBA um, having the speech. Yes. What did you make of that? Well, it, it's it's in fl- well, it's the governor anyway, Philip Lowe. The yes. The the, um, the the topic of the well, I guess almost the topic of the year is inflation, and it's just everywhere. So uh, we had RB, we had the RBA governor calming the horses and really saying. He's not overly worried and inflation will be transitory and wages aren't going to go up as much as we think. But then we've had these perspectives, a few perspectives from offshore at the UBS conference this week that really said the bottlenecks that we're seeing around the world might resolve themselves sometime next year. But after that, there could be this wave of inflation from higher energy prices, which are required really as we pay for the energy transition. So... uh, as we produce less fossil fuels and we move to more expensive renewables and as we stop finding new oil, um, those, the prices of those things will go up and, and oil is an essential ingredient in, uh, I think, 7,000 products across the economy, including fertiliser, which is vital to food. So it is a really interesting question to think through. How does those, how do rising, as we move away from fossil fuels and they get more expensive... How do how does that feed through to the wider economy? So, uh, uh, you'd have to think it will. That'll be the phone then, but uh, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> now, listen. Um, yeah. So, uh, there's there's two issues. One is energy, which is the tra- as you say, we've got the transition coming, yeah. which is going to cost more, uh, and wages. Now, uh, Phil Lowe actually highlighted wages, talked about that, and it seems to be the basis of his view that inflation isn't going to be much of a problem, or at least it's going to be gradual, is that um, there's a lot of inertia in the Australian wages system. Yeah. So yeah. he reckons that, you know, the the enterprise bargaining system and the minimum wage system in Australia makes, makes it difficult to get wages up. Um, and he didn't talk about it this time, this week, but he has talked in the past about how uh, temporary migration in Australia has suppressed... Wages, which it has, yes. it seems to me. Yeah. Well, we've so we've had wage stagnation for like ten years, and I was interested in your paper this morning. Uh, it's got a story that uh, the government is saying they're not in a hurry to return temporary migration or immigration levels back because it might um, slow down the return of higher wages. Yeah, there's a lot of contra- contradictory si- signals, isn't there? Um, we're we're sort of holding off on migration apparently to lift wages and yet with no migration for the past 18 months the wage print on on Wednesday was very weak 2.2% you know we're hearing about labour shortages and baristas getting $50 an hour and you can't get a you know cafes not being able to open full time but we're not seeing any sort of upward pressure on yeah, wages well, so yet. Yeah, so businesses are resisting the, the wage uh, the wage claims. Yeah. And, and as Phil Lowe said in his speech, they're basically doing anything other than paying more money to get to attract and retain staff. In, including shutting their doors, bizarrely. Yeah. So, well, I, yeah. I, I'm not, I, I, what do you think? How does, it, how does it play out? How does it break? Uh, well, uh, uh, 
you know, I think that it's going to take a while for wages to go up. I mm. mean, clearly there's a real resistance in Australia yep. to the wages rising. Um, you know, uh, and and the far and what they're saying at the moment, the farmers and the businesses are all saying, no, no, give us temporary migrants back again. Yeah, they'll take the lower money. Yeah, um, and so that's uh, they're really pressuring the government. Yes, to yes. open up the borders again. And you think that pressure will have some success, but but, but the government, not. The, yeah, the government it. seems to be resistant. In big numbers, so maybe there'll be a trickle. That'll yeah. build over time. I think it was very sure. interesting that that, you, that story you, you guys had this morning. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. It, it's it's um, and of course the pressure will come from other places. You know, as we as we find prices going up for fresh fruit and vegetables, for example, if we you know if farmers' uh, costs go up, you know we'll see these pressures come through. It'll be interesting to see how the government handles the pressure from different quarters there. Yeah. Um. On another matter, just changing the subject, I couldn't believe my eyes the other day and I was looking at the, the shares to do my shares for the ABC News. CBA down 8 point something percent. I know. What a, what I looked a... at that and thought, no, nah, it can't be right. Yeah, well... Maybe they went ex-dividend, I thought. Nah, <laughs> it wasn't ex-dividend. It, it was a weird one because we'd seen... We had a banking reporting season with ANZ and NAB and, and Westpac report, you know, a week ago. They all said... Our net interest margins, our, our profit margins, basically, are under pressure. It's hugely competitive. And so the, the market sort of re-rated those three stocks, but must have forgotten about CBA. And then they came out yesterday with a quarterly that said, hey, our margins are hurting too. And everyone went, oh, gosh, well, we, we better we better whack them too. So it was a bit of a weird... And, but they whacked them more than the others. Well, and, and that goes back to this premium that, that CBA is trading on. You know, they're... Before yesterday, they were trading at 22 times forward earnings. The rest of the banks were on 14 to 16. So CBA is a great bank. It's our biggest bank. I think it's our best bank from a technology point of view. But it's overpriced. But is it is it is it that much better? Is it 30 percent better? And I think the market saying is is saying, well, we're not sure about that now either. Yeah. So does that I had a piece. Afford? I had a piece in the Eureka report last Saturday. Mm. Uh, uh, Singing, basically singing the praises of Ross McEwen, saying that he's he's on the way to becoming yep. Australia's best banker. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I don't know whether there's a reward for these things, but <laughs> but uh, you know, he's he's he seems to be really really turning a, a nab around. Yes, he's um he's clearly uh, got the joint humming, and he's a very uh, you would know him well, and he's a very straight shooter. He's not a not a guy who sort of does the big sort of corporate jargon. <laughs> he just sort of cracks in and and does the normal things that bankers do. I think um, it, it's interesting to see... It's, it's interesting, just before you move on, yeah. he was he was passed over for the CEO yes. of CBA. Yes. For, for, for Ian Narev. Yes. Um, and then, moved, went, then went to Royal Bank of Scotland. Yeah, yeah. Where he really learned how to be a banker in Scotland. Well, and how to do a turnaround and how to... Yeah. How well, to run a RBS. bank when everyone hates you, basically. <laughs> uh, RBS needed a turnaround. Yeah, they did. They did, and so did NAB. Yeah. To be really clear, I mean, a lot of the things that uh, McEwen is benefiting from were put in place by Andrew Thorburn. Like he did some really good things about starting to straighten the bank's technology out and ripping out, reducing the number of products they were selling and making that simpler. So he's got a bit of a tailwind from that. But just the way the sort of the, I, I think the attitude he brings to the bank of 
uh, of you know focusing on the customer. They, I know they all say they do that, but but it's just you can just tell the the place is straightened up. So yeah, yeah. Um, now Matt Common at CBA is ploughing a bit of a different field. He's very confident that his bank is. Uh, you know, does all the basics well, and you know his mortgage market share would say that's absolutely right. Now he's trying to do this more tech platform push, um, which I think is is again pretty strategically clever uh, in terms of how they what happens in the future when the fintechs continue to just nip away at the edges. CBA should be more resistant, but it's it's interesting that it does seem to be this bifurcation. Nab and uh, Nab and CBA. ANZ and Westpac with their issues. So, you know, it always is always swings and roundabouts. Someone's always got their issues and someone's always in the ascendancy, but it's interesting to see who it is at the moment. Um, uh, Stephen Main, who was on the Money Cafe last week, is, right. is going for a world record um, six AGMs today. Oh, wow. He's attending and he can, he can only do it because they're virtual. The power of right. technology. Yes. He's, he's going to do. He's, a, he's <laughs> saying it's a world record six today, right? Yeah, including News Corp from seven thirty a.m. this morning. Yes, which I I gather had uh, went for twenty eight minutes, Alan. Well, that that was more than longer than last year's twenty six minutes. <laughs> it included two questions, I'm told. So there you go. Yeah, that's right. There's no free speech at. Um, <laughs> At News Corp AGMs. Anyway, you don't like virtual AGMs. No, I, I, I'm... You're again them. I think we're going to end up in the right place with hybrid AGMs. Um, you know, I, I think probably when I started in this, in, in business journalism 20 years ago, like the AGMs seemed to be dying. And then, you know, it was, you know, sort of criticised as being old people are just there for the sandwiches and the biscuits and the cup of tea. But the the... Advent of the strike against remuneration really made AGM sort of interesting and punchy again, and I think an important moment where shareholders get to face their uh, get, get to face the directors. Now, whether that's over a cup of tea politely or it's a bit more angrily on the floor of the meeting, you know, I've watched a lot of these virtual AGMs, and, and they're just not the same as the real life thing. You, the, the, the transparency is is not at the level like. Stephen is someone who's who's whacked in a lot of questions at virtual AGMs. You know, I think at Crown he might have put in thirty questions. Now, okay, that's great, but what we can't see is what questions are being entered and not answered by the company. Whereas on the floor of an AGM, you can see, well, they've refused to let that guy speak, or uh, that lady hasn't been able to get her question in. So it's just not the same in transparency for me, and I think. You know, yes, it's got us through the pandemic. That's great, but we need to. We don't want virtual only AGMs. We want a hybrid where you can have virtual attendance to help people from interstate or who might not be able to get to an AGM. But then we have the physical meeting where the, where shareholders get the chance to meet the people who they've put in charge of managing the joint. Yeah. Oh well, your that's my rant. That's your rant <laughs> about it. Uh, I think I think you're right. Hybrid's the way to go. Yeah. Uh, and that's where we'll end up. Yep. Um, like everything now. Yeah, exactly. Hybrid working. Hybrid cars. Have you got a, by the way, have you got an electric car yet? No, no, I don't. I'm an I'm a internal combustion. Uh, we, we, we did, we bought a new car last year and we sort of thought, will this be the last? What do you think? Will it, will it be? I think it will be. Yeah. I hope it will be. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, because, because uh, if you buy another one in two or three years' time, yeah. uh, it'll be worth nothing when you come to sell it. 
exactly. And will we be able to get the parts and? In fact, the one you got now, for the one you got now, mightn't be worth anything <laughs> in three years' time. Yeah, quite it's possibly. Possibly. I mean, yeah, the That's rate the, of the it's the, the rate of production growth of EVs that you need to watch, isn't it? Like yeah. there's, there's demand is far outstripping supply at the moment. Far, far, far outstripping supply. So, it, you know. If if I wanted to get an EV, I'd probably have trouble getting my hands. I on think one. everyone is starting to get worried about resale value of internal combustion cars. Yeah, yeah, I mean, possibly. Yeah, I don't think that's that's a reasonable thing to be worried about, really. Yeah, I think it's right. I mean, yeah. yes, it's hard to say how it wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> like I know. Uh, the the world's moving pretty quickly in that direction, and. Um, Obviously, all the car makers have big plans. I mean, it's so fascinating, this whole thing. Obviously, Tesla at a trillion dollars, and last week we had Rivian list and immediately become the sixth uh, the sixth biggest car maker in the world by market value, despite having never sold a car. They've produced, they've only produced 156 of the things, which is um, not bad going. And you can be <laughs> worth $100 billion or, you know, 120 in our in our money, so... It, it's just a, a, the, the speed of this transition is amazing. You know, will the Toyotas and the Fords and the Mitsubishis and the G, General Motors be able to make the jump with all their legacy, you know, all their legacy problems, debts, ageing workforce, pensions? Um, I, I don't know. I, I think they're coming from a long way back. I was talking to, to an investor in these things uh, last week and he was saying he's, he's investing in VW, Volkswagen. Yeah. Because they're so much bigger, they're putting all this money into electric vehicles. Yeah. Um, uh, but there's another argument that says uh, the companies like Volkswagen are never going to be able to catch up to Tesla and the and this and the dedicated electric vehicles companies. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, if you were the CEO of Volkswagen, you 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 you're looking at this and you're effectively having to run two businesses because. All the cars, all your hundreds of millions of VWs on the road now have to be supported with parts and service and dealers and and all that sort of stuff. And then you're trying to move into electric vehicles which have very sort of specific, quite complex manufacturing processes. So what do you do? Which side of the, you know, it's that sort of Kodak moment. Do you you know where your cash flow is coming from and you know where you've got to invest, but... Being able to juggle the two, even for a big company like VW, is so hard. And margins aren't great in car making, no, except for right. Tesla. Except so, for Tesla. Yeah. And, th- and they've reinvented manufacturing. Well, th- uh, this is one of the big things. And, and this is, you know, if you listen, listen to a Tesla investor call with Elon Musk, he drones on interminably about how hard manufacturing is. And you sort of think, oh, yeah, well, you know, the Fords and the GMs and the Toyotas, they could have told you that. Elon, of course it's hard, but then you think he is trying to reinvent it such he that is. his margins are much better and less people involved. Well, and he's working. I mean, his margins are 40%. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no one's, no, no one's doing that in any kind of manufacturing. Yeah. I mean, you put the valuation of Tesla aside and, you know, I don't quite get how you get to a trillion dollars, but it's an amazing story. Like, what's happened there in space of a decade? It's pretty unprecedented, but it's the sort of... Yeah, collection of a whole lot of moving forces. So. Yeah, yeah, great story. So, uh, do you want to move on to the questions? Yeah, they're great let's questions this week. Let's, let's talk about the questions. First one's uh, from uh, how do you say that? Shayan, Sian, Sian. Yeah, I think so. Sean, is it, it's, it's Sean with a accent over the A. 
whoever you are. That's your real name. Excellent. <laughs> Could you comment on the share purchase plan raising capital raising by MQG, Macquarie Group? Macquarie seems expensive at the moment. Is this the best thing for management to do for MQG shareholders given the interest rate increases predicted? In comparison, would lowering the dividend be a, be a more efficient and effective way to raise capital? Do you think there are enough opportunities for MQG to invest in this apparently pricey environment to maximise return on the capital raised? I think the uh, initial answer, Alan, there is yes, yes, they'll have lots of opportunities. They're doing the right thing by raising capital at when their shares are at or near record levels. That's the time you want to raise capital, not when your shares are cheap. So uh, tick there. Um, and will they have – what will the rising interest rate environment – it should be good for them, really. Uh, their, their margins in their bank, for example, will be better. And uh, a rising sort of yield environment should give them more opportunities. So, um, yes, the shares are pricey, and I think the discount's pretty skinny. We were just looking at a 2% discount or um, 191 bucks or something, whichever's greater. So, it is a skinny discount, but uh, look, Macquarie is proven that it can work in most cycles. Um, and uh, th- there's no reason to think that in a world that is desperate to find fund things like the energy transition where they're doing well, that they, they'll find ways to put their money to work. What do you think about the suggestion that, that lowering the dividend would be a better way to raise capital? Um, I don't well, think they, they don't have a really much. high payout ratio, no, so don't. I don't think there's much scope for that. Mm. I think this is probably the easiest way. Yeah. Yeah. You want to read the next one? Absolutely. Uh, Hello Money Cafe, there seems to be a lot of stories on housing affordability and what we can do to fix... This is from Michael, by the way. From Michael, sorry, yes. Ever-rising prices, especially after the last year or so. But I assume the sellers, real estate agents and those receiving stamp duties and any CGT must be loving it. So is there any real drive for governments to do anything? I'm far away from all the big cities, so these wild rises are yet to affect me. Yet might be the operative word there, uh, Michael. Uh, so is there any real drive for governments to do anything? Only sort of political pressure, which is not that great. Um, I've commented before that it's no one's job to worry about housing affordability, really. And so no one does. Yes. I mean, uh, uh, both APRA and the RBA were in front of the Falinski uh, inquiry into ho- home affordability um, this earlier this week, I think. Or was it last week? Anyway, um, th- uh, they were both specifically asked... Are you worried about, is it your job to worry about housing affordability? And each of them said no, hmm. no. It's not hmm. that we don't care about it, but it's not in our mandate. APRA's worried about the system, financial system stability um, and uh, the RBA's worried about, uh, worried about inflation and uh, employment and neither of them are concerned about housing affordability and really um, no one is. And I guess if you're a... Uh a Labor or a Liberal government, uh, making houses more affordable means either making their prices go down or stop going up, and there'll be a price to pay. Your opponents will make make some hay with that. So, Well, they did last time, and uh, uh, Bill Shorten tried to do it in uh, 2019. Exactly, with by, uh, changing, the, by uh, changing negative gearing. Negative gearing, so... And uh, you got whacked. There's just no... There's no uh, pressure 
to, to do much about it, unfortunately. So I interviewed Felinski last week for a piece I'm doing on this subject for 7.30. Yep. And um, I put to him, because the terms of reference of his inquiry are all about supply. Yes. And increasing supply. And I said to him, are you able to come up with any other uh, answer than increasing supply, given the terms of reference? And he did say, no, no, no. Uh, it's, it's much more complicated than that and there's going to be much more to it and we will, he promises, come up with a broad solution to housing affordability. That concentrates on whacking the states for uh, supply. Something like that. I mean, yeah. that's, what, that's, the, that's the thing. I mean, supply is a state and local government issue and it gets the Commonwealth off the hook. That's where it'll land. Do you want me says, to read this one? No, it's on my turn. <laughs> okay. Ian says, Morning... Cola for Kuyang Young would be a winner. Oh, that's right. <laughs> so Maine, Stephen Maine suggested I uh, stand yes. against Josh Frydenberg. Yep. Um, although if I was 70, I wouldn't do it either. That's what I said. I'm just about to turn 70. I'm not standing for Parliament, goodness <laughs> me. Um, we may be six months away from a change of government, although Rupert will do his best to prevent it. Which sectors will be winners and which sectors will be losers if Labor gets in? Could the renewable sector survive another three years of energy policy by the Bible? Hmm. Right. <laughs> so not quite know what that this, means. He's slipping that in. No, uh, this is, I think he's referring to Scott Morrison's... Right, yes. Uh, okay. ...religiousness. Yes, fair enough. Um, anyway, uh, do you have any views about who will be winners and losers if Labor gets in? Oh, I think um, sort of clean energy would be a broad winner. Um whether there'd be more for manufacturing, maybe. Uh, the childcare sector would get some more support, I think, is, is one of their policies. But we don't really have the full slate of policies to be able to declare winners and losers quite I, yet. I suspect we won't get them even when the election happens. Maybe. maybe. I reckon they're going to keep their head down. Gun shy, yeah. Um, as for the renewable sector surviving another three years of energy policy by the Bible, I guess the one thing you'd say is that a bit like with, with COP26, the weight of money and the urgency is almost... I, I don't think many in the energy sector worry too much about government policy. Like, they bemoan it, but mainly they're just getting on with the job and, and things are moving quicker than, the, than um, the federal government particularly seems to be sort of in control of. So, yep. I think I think renewable sector will be fine. Your turn. Dear Alan, this is from Jenny. I hope all is well with you. Bendigo and Adelaide Bank has dropped considerably lately. Do you know why it's dropped and do you know and do you think it will drop some more or do you think it's a buy? I understand this is general advice only. Thank you so much. Um, well, we've just been talking about banks and um, CBA and they've been talking about squeezed margins. Yep. All of the big banks have been talking about that and I guess Bendigo's getting the same thing. Well, even worse if you're a little bank, right? Well, that's the problem. <laughs> that, that's, and I'd say, that's, isn't that the reason that they've yeah. fallen more is because if you're a little bank in this kind of environment, you're under more pressure. Yeah. And for all the talk about rates going up, they're, they're so low and that's hard, hard, hard yards for banks. They just don't go well when banks are the, when interest rates are this low. Well, no, because how can they make a, a big margin? They can't. Exactly. They can't. And Bendigo and Adelaide has a particular issue with cost to income ratio. It's very high. And uh, the CEO, Marnie Baker, is working to get it down. Um, but I think that'll take some time too. Is that inherent in their model, do you think? Um, Having a high cost? I think it has been, uh, you know, but it's running at 60% where... where The others are under four, under 50, aren't well, they? Well, most of them are, yeah, yeah. 
around 50 or under it and CBA is down 45 from memory or something. So might be wrong there, but definitely well under 50. So, you know, that's a big, that's a big job to get that cost to income ratio down. Yeah. So in an ultra competitive environment, it seems people are preferring other banks. Yeah, I'm interviewing um, the CEO of uh, Judo Bank okay. next week, Joseph yeah. Healy. Now, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of these new banks, their, their costs are minimal. Yes, yeah, well, know, they're, so they're, they're clean sheet banks that haven't got the legacy exactly. issues. Exactly, yeah. so they're, you know, they're, they're coming in at big discounts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. So poor old Bendigo, I guess, is getting squeezed between the neo banks and the big banks. Yeah, that middle ground's always a hard to, place to be, right? The, it's, it's good to be either big or a little, being in the middle is tough. John says, where can one go to, to go on the World Wide Web to see for free the closing latest commodity uh, e.g. wheat and metal prices. An example uh, would be the prices you deliver on the finance report on the ABC News. I don't know where you get them for free. Do you know? Um, I, I get them off um, Refinitiv, the yeah. uh, system that I use. I think if you go to... Uh, I, I think you'll find... You know, you'll have to shop around a little bit, but, but if you go to... Yahoo Finance, you'll you'll get a fair number of them. Um, definitely gold, maybe not wheat. Uh, some of the soft commodities can be harder. It's hard to get those for free without paying for them. Yeah, yeah. I know the AFR has gold, iron ore, Bitcoin, those sort of things, but I don't think we extend to daily wheat prices. Yeah. In fact, I couldn't even tell you if wheat's priced daily. It probably is. Probably overseas. Say, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a it's a spot market. Yeah. So the answer is we don't really know. Uh, keep searching. Keep looking. Keep searching or, you, or if there's specialist information you, you really have to pay. Keep a journalist in a job. Your turn. Hey, Alan. Luke here. Yes, it is my real name. It sometimes surprises me how focused we are on renewable metals like zinc, copper, cobalt, lithium, etc. required for the energy transition. Graphite, from what I can tell, will be one of the biggest success stories from this transition. But it's like it's not worth mentioning on the average investment sites. Do I have my wires crossed? Because I believe it's a great place to invest. Love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, it's one. It's absolutely one. One of the group of energy transmission materials for sure. Uh, and there are a couple of ASX listed companies that do it. One in particular, Telga Resources, has got a got a graphite resource in Sweden, and it's got a factory in Germany that it's going to turn it into. Graphene, which is even more valuable form of graphite. Uh, yeah, I, there I, are. I know there are others. I just can't remember the names. I of think them. Luke's right that it doesn't get the same. No, you're right. Uh, that's true. That might be have something to do with the fact that it's it's not a new mineral. We've been mining graphite forever um, for pencils. For pencils. Uh, so perhaps. Uh, it, it's you know it's not quite as sexy as lithium or cobalt, which are rarer, um, and their uses are uh, sort of you know only more recently been developed. So that might be the reason. I, I'm not sure of the scarcity of graphite either, but of course lithium. There's heaps of lithium in the world too. So yeah, um, uh, uh, yeah, it's one of those. All of these thing, all of these new, these future-facing commodities have the issue of how much you can get out of the ground and how much you can process. Yeah. Uh, Michael says, uh, one question for the uh, S next SMSF discussion. In my early, th I'm in my early 30s. I'm many years away from having a balance that would justify an SMSF. So just just for my own learning, 
I can see the advantage of a fixed annual cost versus a percentage fee. Most sources seem to hover around the 300000 mark before you break even with an SMSF idea. In a nutshell, the main advantage is having a personalised fund that one thinks, can, one thinks they can truly do better returns compared with stocking with one of the major players. It seems that not only would you have a fair bit of trust in accountants and advisors, but a fair bit of self-confidence would be needed to go down that road. For most, I would think, one super would be the largest chunk of money they control at one time. Um, yeah, well, uh, you do need a fair bit of money to make an SMSF worthwhile if you're hiring a, an accountant to do it because you've got to get it audited and, yeah. you know, that it is probably about 2000 bucks, maybe okay. 1500 um, yeah. depending on where you go. So um, that's kind of 1% of... Um, a couple of hundred thousand. So, yeah. you know, what that's about kind of that, what you need. The, the sort of inherent question there from Michael about how much time and expertise you need. Like, yeah. That would seem to me the biggest uh, the biggest barrier for me. Time, it would be particularly, and, and I would question my own expertise as well. Yeah, I think, I actually think that, uh, and I, have, I couldn't swear to this, but I think it's true that most SMSFs underperform super funds. Yeah. Um, because... Individuals tend to make emotional decisions, tend to sell, um, you know, sell low and buy high. Yeah. Um, but you know, there, look, if you if you if you're prepared to put in the time, you know, you can you can do it. And also, a lot of people get an SMSF because they want to do specific things with the money that they yes. can't do in a super fund. You know, they might want to buy an investment property or yeah, yeah, or something, or a property for their business or something like that. Yeah, a, that's right. So that's, I, I mean, I do think a lot of people have an SMSF as part of their business, you're right. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I think Michael's sort of thinking in the right way that it is a decision that needs a lot of careful thought. Like it's it's not set and forget, that, that's for sure. No, that's and, right. And, um, and the other thing to remember is that most of the big super funds these days have a lot of options. You're now able to tailor, you, you know, you're now able to almost have a hybrid SMSF within a yeah. super fund environment where yes. you're not paying very much, they handle everything, but you're still choosing your stocks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, within a certain number. I mean, I think, I, 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 just from memory, I think Australian Super, for example, you can choose within the top 300. Yeah, something like that. Um, yeah. So you can't buy micro caps in there, but you can choose your own stocks within the top 300. Yes. And there's nothing to stop you having your money in a super fund and, and playing micro caps in a, in a different way you know, not necessarily through your super That's uh, right. as well. So yeah. I, I think I think it's a really big decision. I, I'm a bit like Michael. I'm not in the ballpark. But I, I sort of look at it and think, how? where would I find the time to yeah. do this properly? And the, thing, uh, and the other thing to say on an SMSFs is that by far the majority of SMSFs are not actually run by the trustees. They, they, they give it to an advisor. Yeah. Advi most yeah. SMSFs are run, you know, the, the investment decisions are made by advisors. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, for so, a percentage. Yeah. And if you're going to do that, you might as well pay the super fund, the smallest percentage, because I guess you'll get access to things you can't get through an SMSF, like unlisted infrastructure. Precisely. And, uh, private That's equity. Right. and Yeah, and also the, the super fund's fees are lower. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So it's a big decision, uh, and I think uh, Michael's thinking about it in the right way. Uh, does he have the sort of self-confidence and the... Wherewithal to want to do it himself. Yeah. You need more money though too, Michael. Yeah. Well, that's it. No more questions. And uh, we've run out of time. It's been 
Great again, James. Thanks for joining us at uh, Short Straw Cafe in Hawthorne. No worries. It's, it's been, been great fun. It's been great. Great questions. Th- thanks, everyone, for listening, and thanks for your questions. If you've got any questions for next week, uh, I don't know who we'll be with next week, but um, I'm sure it'll be someone great. <laughs> and uh, we'll answer your questions next week if you send them into the Money Cafe at eurekareport.com.au. So until next week, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief at Eureka Report, and he is James Thompson, Shonda Clare columnist at the Australian Financial Review.